Hi, it's Alex, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Youth in Education podcast series, CFEY Live. In this series, we're exploring the most interesting aspects of research that we are carrying out at the Centre for Education and Youth, and providing you with insights from the practitioners and young people that we work with. Thanks for listening. The Centre for Education and Youth believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at cfey.org. Hi, and welcome to this episode of the CFEY Live podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by Janine Hyatt from the Fair Education Alliance and my colleague Baz to discuss the latest report card launched by the FEA, which was co-authored by myself and Baz. In the episode, we explore the key themes from the report, look at the changes seen in the education system over the last decade and outline the key recommendations. I hope you enjoy. Janine, first of all, it's lovely to have you on today's podcast. It feels like it's been a long time coming um, in terms of this report coming out. So it's great to to have you here and to talk about it. Um, Would you be able to kick us off by telling us about the Fair Education Alliance and give us some backgrounds on the report cards that you release? Yeah, the Fair Education Alliance is a coalition of 250 member organizations working to tackle inequality in education. So our members come from across sectors. We have businesses, charities, social enterprises, schools, and think tanks like CFUI. Um, And one of our main purposes as an organization is to join up the dots between people working on this issue and get everyone sort of singing from the same hymn sheet Um, And we also run an awards program, the Fair Education Awards, to find and nurture innovations that then have the potential to make education fairer. So the report card is our annual State of the Nation on educational inequality. And it's a tool for doing that alignment of everyone on where we are in closing the gap between poorer students and wealthier ones and what we need to do to make more progress. Thank you, Janine. That's a really nice um, overview of the work that you're doing. I understand that as an organisation, you have five impact goals on the report card. Would you be able to tell our listeners what they are and why you chose these five in particular? Yeah, the impact goals were conceived by a cross-sector group of stakeholders um, to have an agreed way of measuring our progress towards closing the disadvantage gap. So we refer to the disadvantage gap, but there are lots of different elements or points in the education journey that you could consider or measure that at. Um, So the impact goals aim to close five different gaps. Um, The first is attainment at the end of primary school. Second is GCSE attainment. The third is socio-emotional development and skills. The fourth is young people in further education or training after GCSE. And then the fifth is university admissions, including to the most selective universities. Um, This year's report card is special because it's the 10-year anniversary of the impact goals. Um, And it's strange to think about this now, but a decade ago, we weren't talking about socioeconomic disadvantage in the way we do now. Um, Pupil premium was a new thing. And one thing that we have seen progress on over the past decade, I guess we'll talk about all of the ways that we haven't seen progress shortly, but we have seen an increased focus on getting poor students the same outcomes as wealthier ones um, and kind of some energy around um, that topic. Um, 
Joe, your CEO, has actually said he thinks there should be a sixth goal looking at um, inclusion, which is a really interesting idea. But for now, we have five. Yeah, funny enough, I was going to ask you about that sixth goal since I, I do remember Joe mentioning that. I mean, what are your thoughts on that as a possibility? I think it's really interesting because we've used um, exclusions as um, a proxy for socio-emotional competencies in the past. And I think exclusion rates are a really important metric. And also um, the performance of pupils with SEND is um, something that we always bring out in the report card. Um, and so how inclusive our schools are and how well we're getting all pupils to engage with education and be prepared for life after education is definitely key. And I don't I think that we've gotten there by bringing it out of the five goals we've got, but I could definitely see the justification for a separate sixth goal. It's interesting, isn't it? It seems to be kind of weaved within all of the impact goals themselves. But I mean, inclusion itself is such a big topic. It, it could be a sixth goal, but as you say, it it, it kind of acts as almost a, a golden thread um, throughout the, the different impact goals. Absolutely. And and when we came up with our organizational priorities with our members, um, we kind of put that at the center of them. We have lots of different priorities, but it's all towards creating a more inclusive education system. So there are lots of different things you can split this up and it always feels like something um, is kind of either getting missed out or getting worked into everything. And I think that's just a, a tension in the complexity of this work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the education space is so broad. Um, I'd imagine kind of distilling it down into to five goals in and of itself was was quite complicated. Um, but it, it seems as though the the goals themselves do seem to to generally cover the breadth of, of what people are interested in within the sector. Um, Baz, I'd love to bring you in now. Um, what do you think to you stood out about this work, particularly compared to some of um, the other bits of research that we do? So I think typically a lot of our research tends to be very zoomed in, tends to be about a very specific intervention that we're evaluating. It tends to be about a very specific group of young people. For example, our work previously on uh, youth homelessness or young people who are from gypsy Roma traveler backgrounds. And that kind of makes sense. You know, life is in the details and research has to follow suit as well and be very specific. But it's not very often that we as an organization get the opportunity to really zoom out and look at things from that macroscopic perspective and from that longitudinal perspective. So that's what was great about working on this uh, report card with the Fair Education Alliance was getting the opportunity to take a step back and look at the evidence that's been building over the last decade on uh, outcomes to young people and how they've changed in relation to these five impact goals. And I guess at a personal level, um, to be honest, like I started working in education like around the time Fair Education Alliance was was getting set up and these impact goals were coming into being. So it was like an opportunity for me to reflect on my journey through the education system, starting working as a teaching assistant back in 2012. So at that level as well, it kind of really you know drove home like how much has changed and in some respects how little has changed. So getting to take that kind of zoomed up perspective has been great in this work. Yeah, it's a good way to put it, actually. I remember when I was um, prepping for this podcast and I was trying to think, you know, what was the most interesting things for me in terms of the research? I couldn't help but feel like everything. Um, really getting to, to take a view broadly at what's happening in the sector, um, particularly over the 10 years. It, it To me, it just felt, yeah, as you say, it felt like a nice chance to to take more of a zoomed out approach and really 
dig into to different areas and look across the years rather than at one particular at one particular issue within the sector thinking about the the each of the impact goals what would you say were some of the most important findings particularly over the past year and then also over the last 10 years as well Janine I'm going to go to you first on this one yeah for for me there's something about the nuance within the category of disadvantage um and um, some of the, the subcategories that were brought out in the report from the last year. So, for example, um, that regional disparities are widening um, across GCSE destinations after GCSE and University admissions. So where you live in the country really matters. Um, that there are some worrying trends for pupils with SEND and GCSE results and well-being. Um, so the needs you have um interacting with your poverty matters. Um, and um, then thinking back a bit further than, than the past couple of years, um, that persistently disadvantaged pupils have been falling further behind others. So how long you've been in poverty matters. So just thinking with a bit more nuance um, about that category of disadvantaged people and um, trying to better understand the complexity within that. Yeah, for me, I was I was really struck by the fact that there have been, that the, particularly when we take a kind of like longitudinal perspective looking at the last 10 years, there have been some kind of shades of progress, which I think sometimes can not feel like it is the case because the, uh, I would argue, the, the overwhelming uh, narrative within the, the world of um, education youth is broadly like a fairly pessimistic one um, and one that can frequently feel bordering on nihilistic in the sense that it feels like hopeless, right? It feels like, you know, we're not going to be able to make the changes that we want and it's largely a lost cause. So it's good to see that there has been some progress in some areas. Um, I think we were certainly struck by once you um, sequence like the key stage two attainment data, you can see that there were admittedly small, like, let's be realistic here, there were small uh, decreases in the size of the attainment gap. Um, and the attainment gap here being a, a measure of the difference in outcomes sat for young people who are from wealthier backgrounds and those who are from poorer backgrounds. So we had seen that basically decreasing. Um, we'd seen the uh, number of pupils at Key Stage 1 meeting expected standards in the phonics assessment also increasing uh, in proportion year on year, although there's, there's possible other explanations for that we can get into. Um, and we also saw, if, you look, if we take a slightly broader uh, look at attainment and look at um, GCSE attainment as well, we see that there are certain groups who um, we sometimes might code as being disadvantaged in some respects, right? So, um, for example, uh, Chinese pupils or uh, pupils who are from a South Asian background, pupils who speak English as uh, another language or not as their first language at any rate. These groups who we might frequently... Um, cash is disadvantaged who actually have consistently quite high outcomes compared, compared to a lot of their peers and that's something that again can often get lost in this like broadly fairly uh, morose narrative about um, the fate of young people at the moment so that was certainly very reassuring um, but I, I say all of that with not wanting to detract from the fact that we also did pick out quite a lot of areas where things have in some respects gotten worse in some respects not changed and are you know, real calls to action for the sector. Yeah, that, that English as an additional language one was really interesting, wasn't it? Because I remember we, we kept saying, can we go back and check that? Like, is their attainment actually actually that positive across um, three core subjects? And so 
you're right. There's still um, there's still positive stories in there to learn from and take something from and and celebrate, um, despite an overall kind of picture of um, us not wanting, not having made the progress we wanted to. I think there was some other, one of the things I really like about the impact goals is just their, their, their general breadth, right? In the sense that they, uh, while well, Joe may think we need one more, like I think they're pretty exhaustive as they stand. Um, and impact goal three um, is uh, one that covers like a lot of what we consider to be really important when we're talking about outcomes for young people, all about social emotional well-being, social emotional competence and skills more broadly. Um, and a lot of what we saw in there was really fascinating because this is an area where there's actually not uh, a ton of great longitudinal data. There's a lot of data out there about young people's mental health outcomes. Uh, a lot of that was what has been connected in the last few years, particularly uh, um, prompted by COVID and the pandemic. Um, but there's not like a lot of great kind of robust standardized measures of young people's mental health co- outcomes that are done uh, year to year. And um, that's certainly like an omission that we like flag uh, in uh, our, our write-up. But what was really interesting was looking at the stuff on uh, on skills, where which is quite you know a, a nebulous concept for many. Um, and again, there's not like a great standardized way of looking at this. But one of the things we did get an opportunity to look at was that we looked back through the um, CBI, Confederation of Business and Industry, looked at their annual uh, survey that they do of employers and representative bodies for employers to see what are, the, what are employers saying are the gaps in skills when they have young people who are school leavers come and join the workforce. And um, yeah, almost uniformly year on year, we find the same thing. Some of it was literacy and numeracy, although that, that decreases slightly over time, but life skills, as we call them. So the ability to communicate, the ability to problem solve, um, uh, the, the ability to communicate with people who are from uh, backgrounds that are different to one's own, the ability to self-manage are things that routinely come up every year as areas where uh, young people are arriving in the workforce relatively deficient. And that's really interesting in the sense that it says a lot about like how we're conceptualized, like what education is and what we want young people to be doing in school in advance of them um, leaving school and entering the workforce. So, yeah, I just wanted to pick out Impact Goal 3 as having like a lot of really interesting stuff nested under it. I think Impact Goal 3 is a really interesting one because even the way that we've phrased it or the breadth of it kind of illustrates how a decade ago we had um, less focus on everything that could be wrapped into that goal and less um, data and understanding of everything encapsulated in that goal. So you do have um, what we have, what has been called socio-emotional emotional competencies and skills, but that involves mental health, well-being, um, life skills. We have um, put exclusions in there in the past. And I think um, something that is amazing to see is how much more we've learned in the past few years than we would have known in 2012 about everything falling into that goal. Yes, interesting. I mean, we done a work experience at CFEY and one of the things that I was quite keen to kind of focus on was skills in particular. Um, I think often when we conceptualize education or, or what young people need to kind of thrive in the workplace, I think for too long, it, it focused very much on academics, um, so maths, English, etc. And that's obviously important. But I think, as you say, Janine, our, our understanding has moved on since then. Um, and we recognize that 
we need young people to have almost more of a well-rounded experience or a well-rounded set of skills I guess you would say um yeah more of a a well-rounded kind of um range of skills abilities um that being kind of academic and outside the academic as well I think we're that's another thing we're learning more and more about all the time this CBI survey is so useful but um for example skills builder doing um it's data collection of um, who has the skills within its framework and who doesn't and what trends we can see there. I think we'll only learn more and more and then be able to kind of um, either build that into how we're measuring success for pupils or um, target interventions better and better towards it. So thinking more broadly about the report's findings over the last decade, how would you summarize some of the changes that have occurred? Um, and was there anything that surprised or concerned you in the findings? Similar to Bez, I um, entered the education sector um, kind of around the time these goals came into being. Um, I started teaching in 2014, so a little bit later. But um, there's been so much good work done over the last decade. And um, it's not quite true that the gap has remained frozen over the past decade. I think that's one of the kind of takeaways you can have from looking at this 10-year look back. But in a lot of areas, we were making some progress. And I, I feel like for um, a good five or six, six years, there was a feeling that we are getting there bit by bit. Um, and that's been rolled back. So what's concerning to me looking back across this is that progress was already stalling before the pandemic. And of course, the pandemic hit the poorest communities the hardest. But I guess I'm a bit concerned that the learnings from that progress that was stalling are going to get swept away and everything is going to be explained as an impact of COVID. Um, and I think that's overly simplistic and is maybe maybe missing, um, missing some concerns that were happening pre-COVID as well. Yeah, I mean, education outcomes and indeed all outcomes for young people like don't happen in a, in a vacuum. They're often... Uh, tied um, at least loosely to what's going on in the wider world of policy and that's why we do policy is to impact those outcomes and taking this sort of um, uh, broad brush view of the last 10 years was really interesting in terms of seeing and getting being able to get a sense of the impact of some policy choices so clearly the one that uh, looms large over all of this is cuts to school funding um, as we well know uh, from work by the IFS uh, real term per pupil spending in England fell by 9% over the course of 2010 to 2020. And some of the kind of um, the, the, the staggered kind of changes to the attainment gap uh, possibly might be related to that. Um, this, that's something we have to be serious about because we know that typically greater investment is often required to fund the interventions required for drive, to drive up outcomes for disadvantaged pupils. So a lot of it can be related to that. But then there's also other policy choices as well. Um, the introduction of the English Baccalaureate, um, a uh, package of preferred qualifications for young people to take at GCSE seems to have, according to at least some research, seems to have disadvantaged um, young people who are from lower income families in terms of restricting their choice of subjects that they might otherwise be able to do better in. Um, and yeah, we can also see some of the impact that that's had on progression, uh, post-key stage four and into higher education as well. So one of the great things about taking this sort of like decade long perspective is being able to see 
the um, the impact of specific policy choices, which is always a really sage reminder that you know, um, you know policy discourse and like policy decisions are you know they're, they're, there's frequently a sense like in the education world that like well when you're in a classroom you know it doesn't really matter what's going on in Westminster like it's it's up to you as a teacher and your relationship with your class, but it's always a really sage reminder that these policy choices do downstream throughout the whole pyramid end up having impact of what happens to young people. And yeah, for me as head of policy at CFPY, that's always a really important thing to remember. I absolutely agree. And I think that join up between what is happening in Westminster and what happens in the classroom um, is something that would really benefit from being made stronger because I think um, when, when, I was in a classroom, I felt extremely disconnected from um, national policy decisions that were being made. It felt hugely opaque. And um, I think vice versa, sometimes policymakers can see themselves as quite separate and apart from the the practitioners or um, how it translates on the ground. And so the more join up we can have between those things, um, the better. Janine, you kind of picked up or you mentioned before um, you don't want to lose track kind of of some of the good things that were happening um, in the education space, particularly before the pandemic. And I'd love to know from you um, in terms of the report, particularly some of the case studies that you picked up on. Was there any examples of good practice in there that you'd like to highlight? Um, Baz, I don't know if maybe you wanted to chime in afterwards, but it it feels like this might be more relevant to you, Janine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was really challenging narrowing down um, the case studies that we chose for the report to um, one for each of our priorities. But I guess a couple that I would highlight here are, um, I guess, those that get to um, joining up various facets around a child and trying to not look at attainment in a silo, not even look at schools in a silo. Um, So, One is School Home Support. Um, They're an award winner of ours. Um, They're an amazing charity. And they support families to get help with kind of a full myriad of challenges, finances, housing, domestic violence, health, mental health. Um, And by supporting the family environment and being a bridge between the family and school, they remove barriers to that child engaging with school. Um, And they've had a, a hugely positive impact on pupil attendance through that method. Um, so that's that's one. And another one um, is Be Well. Um, and I'll come to them in our recommendations because we're supporting their um, 10-year strategy as one of our recommendations. But I find them really inspiring. It's a program run out of the University of Manchester. They've done a comprehensive well-being census of young people in greater Manchester. They got a huge proportion of schools and young people within them to take part. And it was co-designed with young people to make sure that the questions felt relevant to them. And then they gave every school back the data on their students. What they did not do was create a league table because they didn't want to shame neighborhoods or schools or have it feel punitive um, where um, the well-being of young people was really low or certain aspects of it were really low. They want it to be used as a tool for communities to use in finding their own solutions. And so for me, there's so much good in there about um, collaboration rather than competition, um, supporting rather than shaming, and having a real like grassroots community-led approach that also puts young people right at the front of decision-making. 
The examples that you um, brought up sound incredible. I mean, I had actually heard of school home support previously um, when I was working at the Center for Social Justice and some of the work that they they do was incredible. I, I think there was an example where they supported um, a parent to get a washing machine because um, it was having issues with the, the child's uniform, for example. And it just seems like they really get to to the heart of some of the issues that parents face at home um, and really think about how that trickles down into into a pupil's behavior and attainment at school, um, which is incredible. And Be Well seem to be doing some amazing work as well. I like the idea of not shaming schools. I think sometimes, um, I mean, Baz, you probably have a bit more knowledge of this as you've worked in a school a lot longer than I did. Um, but I think sometimes there's worry amongst schools about getting involved in certain initiatives out of fear of, as you say, being shamed. Um, and I think it's really important to create a space in which schools feel comfortable to really start thinking about the journey that they're on, um, the policies and um, structures that they have in place in um, a supportive environment where they feel as though they can, you know, think about the mistakes or some of the shortcomings that they might have and really be supported to, to kind of think what they should be doing going forward. Um, Janine, you actually touched on some of, um, or you mentioned some of the recommendations um, that you've got in the um, in the report. Would you be able to take us through the recommendations and what you hope they're going to achieve in the the next upcoming years? Yeah, so we've made seven recommendations in the report, and what we've tried to do through talking to our members and looking what they're recommending is try to get to the root causes of inequality in education, Um, be that something outside of the education system or be it kind of structures within education and what we're measuring and valuing. Um, So our members agreed four priorities um, a few years ago, and we've made a recommendation against each of them. And it was really challenging getting it down to kind of one recommendation against each of these four priorities. So The first is educating the whole child, so prioritizing um, well-being and skills alongside attainment. And our recommendation towards that priority is what I just referred to, a national well-being census of young people in line with Be Well's 10-year plan. So that's collecting comprehensive national data about the well-being of young people. And I think that data... Uh, would just unlock so much. You know, we um, we recently put together an ecosystem map of where all of our members are delivering mapped against deprivation and attainment data. And it gives this nice picture of like, okay, where where's their support and where's that working and where's there the most need? Um, but we were so conscious about like, this isn't telling the whole picture. It's just, you know, giving us attainment results on this map. And I think just having that um, agreed data set at a national level um, beyond attainment would help policymakers, the sector generally, schools, parents kind of um, value a more nuanced picture um, beyond just GCSE scores. Um, So in the second priority for us is engaging parents and carers from all communities. And I think um, this isn't what we're recommending isn't strictly about parental engagement, but I guess to it's it's more about family support. So we're recommending um, a holistic children and family strategy. So we need to link up all of the agencies and means of support that surround a family. That's social care, that's mental health, um, that's all of the parental engagement um, that we're wanting schools to do, 
um, that is um, support for SEND. And so I remember Campaign for Learning commissioned a paper that recommended this, but um, it's about joining up those dots and having like clear forms of communication for all of the structures supporting a family. So our third priority is to support teachers and leaders to thrive where they're most needed, including in the most challenging schools. And um, we all know we're in a teacher recruitment and retention crisis that goes um, straight from um, recruitment into initial teacher training up to headship. And that is even more severe in um, the schools that serve the um, poorest populations and the most underserved populations of children. So our proposal is um, supporting those of our members, ASCL and NAHT, and bringing bits of those proposals together into more balanced and shared school accountabilities. I think we need to recognize that um, teaching different student populations um, can be more or less challenging and can, can take more or less resource, need more outside support, and um, we need accountabilities that look at inclusion, that look at teacher retention, that maybe look at um, racial diversity, that are maybe just contextual to the place um, where that school is. So thinking about how we're considering a school to be successful and how we're really recognizing how complex the work of teachers um, working in the, the poorest schools is. Our next one, is supporting great post-16 options for every young person. That's our priority. And towards that, we're urging an investment in a variety of vocational qualifications. Um, so we need a route for everyone, whether or not you have um, good GCSE attainment. So we want everyone to have passing GCSEs and to have that like literacy and numeracy that they need to succeed in employment after. But we also need a route for everyone, even low attaining um, students. So we're uh, making this recommendation along with our member EDGE Foundation, and that includes maintaining BTECs alongside T-levels, um, also kind of focusing the apprenticeship levy on young people rather than later stage professionals. Thank you. Those recommendations sound incredibly comprehensive and really touch upon quite a few of the themes and outcomes that came out of the report. I understand that you also outlined three key themes that you felt like would either enable or block progress towards these recommendations. Are you also able to go through those for us? Yeah. So the first is poverty. Um, the second is place. So this is leveling up, essentially, like, how do we make that a real thing? And then the third is power and who has it and giving more of that power to young people. So um, towards poverty, we're recommending an extension of free school meal eligibility alongside a number of our members. We're also saying that, like, we need to target investment towards where it's most needed. So that's targeted investment um, through programs like the NTP, having um, that focus on pupil premium eligible pupils. Um, that is an uplift to pupil premium um, with like a new category for um, persistently disadvantaged pupils. Um, and it's a school funding index so that um, school funding is linked to inflation. Then with place, we um, we just think we need to give communities the power and long-term backing to make sustained change. And we're um, 
kind of seeing lots of versions of leveling up kind of decade on decade, you know, opportunity areas and then education investment areas. And it's all with the same goal to uh, level out those, those regional disparities. But what we're calling for is a national learning center for place-based change so that we can collate what's working and have that institutional memory that um, survives political cycles so that we can make leveling up stick. And then finally, with power, um, we want to diversify who holds power in the sector, and that includes shifting power to young people and giving a diverse group of young people who maybe haven't been heard from in the past the right to meaningfully participate in decisions impacting their education. Uh, thank you so much for that, Janine. Honestly, I, I genuinely found that really interesting. Um, our viewers wouldn't have been able to see, but I was nodding my head the whole time. Um, I think, you know, it's a really comprehensive list of recommendations. And I think it really touches upon some of the key issues that came out of the research that we did. And also, I'd imagine the case studies that um, FEA was also conducting. Baz, I'm going to come to you next. How would you, how do you think the recommendations that Janine outlined resonate with some of the priorities that we have at CFEY and in particular, some of the work that we've been doing recently? naturally there's a lot of alignment between uh, what we want for the sector and the fair education alliance as we are we are a member and we are fellow travelers with them and have been for quite some time but there's few there's three things actually i want to pick out as areas which i think really overlap with cfey priorities at, at the moment um i think the, th the stuff on youth voice and empowering young people is really central to a lot of what we try to do at cfey in general we're very big on amplifying youth voice and trying to weave it as much as possible into the active co-production of services, both to um, give young people the agency and autonomy they deserve, but also to actually improve the um, delivery of those services. And one of the ways that's manifested for us recently is we are doing some really exciting work at the moment. I say we, I can't really take any credit here. It's all my brilliant colleague, uh, Abby Angus. Uh, Abby is doing some brilliant work on a project called Young Expert Citizens, where she's currently in the process of recruiting 10 young people in Buckinghamshire and 10 young people in East Sussex who are aged between 16 and 25, uh, who have lived experience of um, a particular policy issue. So say, for example, they might be young people who have had contact with the police. They might be young people who grew up in care. Um, that kind of thing. Young people who have got lived experience of a particular issue, Abby's then, having recruited those young people is then going to train them up in research skills and uh, give those young people the opportunity to go out into those communities and research those areas that they have lived experience of, drawing on their lived experience to navigate the complexities of doing research in that space, understanding the grammar and the vocabulary of those worlds that they've got lived experience in. And then Abby's going to be brokering relationships between those young people and local policymakers uh, in those two areas and setting up a relationship whereby those young people are going to be able to inform what's going on in the local policy landscape, uh, hold those local policymakers to account when they fail to adhere to their recommendations and set this up as a kind of sustainable ongoing program of involving young people more actively in the local policymaking process. So that's a really exciting bit of work we're putting together. And among the outputs that we're expecting is hopefully a guide for other organizations, other decision-making bodies, um, 
who want to include more youth voice and youth insight in their work. So not only do we thoroughly co-sign that from the Fair Education Alliance, it's something that we're also hopefully at the front line of delivering as well. Um, the 16 to 19 stuff is great as well. Um, there's been a strong sense at CFEY for some time, particularly from our CEO, Joe, that something's not quite right about how we do 16 to 19 in this country. And actually, there's a lot of scope for us to think uh, a lot more ambitiously about what a 16 to 19 post-secondary program could look like. What we're specking out at the moment and in the early days of thinking about researching uh, and trying to find kind of, you know, um, confederates and other people who would be up for working on this with us is what might it look like if the 16 to 19 um, educational experience that we want for young people included as mandatory some kind of work experience and some kind of caring experience alongside the more academic domains of um, uh, academic learning and indeed even vocational learning um, and what something like that would need to look like in order to work in the current constraints of our education system and our, our youth sector, but also what impact it could have on, um, you know, our, uh, our staggering and stalling economy, but also our young people's um, base of skills and things like other outcomes, such as their mental health and that kind of thing. So we're really interested in that. And so it's really, um, it's, uh, it's really promising to see uh, consideration of what happens at 16 to 19 from FBA. Um, and yeah, place-based, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's very in vogue in like the policy landscape at the moment, but uh, the way FBA are approaching it and indeed the way that we want to approach it as well is to take a slightly more sophisticated uh, understanding of it, which is to try and, um, try and use place-based as a prompt to um, really drill down to the details in a local area and understand how um, local services fit together. This is actually some work that we've done recently, also in Buckinghamshire, West Somerset, and uh, in, in Rochdale as well, where we've uh, had a kind of uh, like macro sense of like young people's outcomes in an area, but have been able to go down, get our boots on the ground and really do some work in those communities, speaking to young people about their experience of like everything from public transport to their access to food security in their local area and really understand how those local services impact on those outcomes that are being more typically measured, such as academic outcomes and mental health and that kind of thing. And to make some really pragmatic recommendations based on having a really rich sense of place in the areas that we're working in. Um, having that sense and using that to make some really like uh, key recommendations for local services if they want to support young people. So yeah, I think uh, place-based is going to be a big part of what we work on moving forward, particularly place-based and understood in the way that I was just describing it, but yet yeah, also uh, some promising stuff on the horizon for 16 to 19 and some really exciting work being led by Abby on Young Expert Citizens. So yeah, um, much, much that we, of course, endorse from, from FBA's recommendations. And yeah, we're really excited to hopefully be a part of delivering the vision that they're um, recommending. That is really exciting to hear, Baz, and definitely so much um, resonates with what I'm thinking about at the moment. And I think what comes through is that none of this is in a silo, that everything is related to everything else. You know, when you think about 16 to 19, skills, like work experience, vocational education, that is so, um, there's so much of a need for that to be contextualized to the local labor market and right for that place and um, fully embedded in the community and um, integrating the like desires of young people for what they want for their future. Um, so 
all of this. And, and it goes back to the, how are we defining school success and how are we measuring the success of schools and how are we broadening that um, and making it appropriate for the context? So I see all of this as, as quite overlapping um, and really excited to keep working on it with you. While we're speaking of young citizens, I'm just going to do a quick plug for anyone that does know um, any young people that might be interested in the work that live in Buckinghamshire or East Sussex, do get in touch with Abby. Uh, her email is abby at cfey.org. Um, I'm going to move us on slightly. Janine, if you could, thinking about the report, if you could ask the government to make one key change to support FEA's goals, what would it be and why? I feel like this is, if I was a politician, I would not answer this question, but um, I'm going to. So for me, the one thing is bringing collaboration back to all of the services, supporting a child and their family. Um, We actually asked school leaders this question earlier this year at the National Schools Forum, and what um, head teachers serving disadvantaged schools said they wanted with their magic wand was um, for other services to be able to do their jobs so that schools and head teachers could do their job of educating children. And I think what we're suffering from at the moment is underfunded services, social care, community policing, housing, health, CAMS, um, schools themselves, sometimes feeling like they're pulling against each other um, and without channels to work together um, for the benefit of a child or family. Um, and I guess in included in that kind of local collaboration is um, helping schools to collaborate. So I, I, I'd like schools to be able to see each other on the same team for serving the young people in their area rather than kind of companies serving customers in a well-functioning market. Um, and competing against each other. So that real sense of like there being enough channels for all of the kind of agencies, services, structures in a local area that are supporting um, children, young people and their families to be able to work together and be better joined up with the child at the center. Baz, I'm going to throw the same question to you thinking about the research. Um what would you ask, what, what's one key change you'd ask the government to support? So, although uh, our preoccupation at CFUI and in, in, indeed uh, for me personally is on young people, the policy requests that I would probably want to put to the government wouldn't be one that we would typically think of as being directly targeted at young people. It would be towards things like um, industrial strategy and labour strategy, for example, in relation to the minimum wage and uh, in relation to welfare policy and um, how families are paid in relation to universal credit um, and industrial strategy in relation to um, job creation and sustainability of job creation in target communities around the country. Um, Why these things as opposed to um, stuff related to education and youth services? Just because, you know, as I was saying earlier on, education doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens, you know, as part of the mosaic that is society and the economy. And we do know that, you know, that's one of the things that clearly comes out in the report, right, is that household wealth remains a fairly robust determinant of lots of outcomes for young people. And if we want to break the back of that, then we have to change household wealth. And changing household wealth is probably not going to be, even in the long term, I would argue, changed by much to do with education policy. So I would want to focus on the economy 
if we are wanting to change outcomes for young people. And indeed, I would say that, um, you know, not, not massively dissimilar to FEA, um, I'd say that this is generally something that we talk a lot about at CFEY is that schools can't do this alone. And by consequence, education and schools policy can't do this alone. Therefore, we need to take a broader perspective on what we need to change in, economy, in the economy at large if we want to change what's happening in the education space. Yeah, I would absolutely co-sign what Baz said. And it goes back to the first of the big three themes that we felt like we really needed to pull out this year, poverty, that without doing something urgently about rising poverty, we aren't going to be able to make much progress on anything else. Um, and so I think I think there's a real recognition um, in the education sector and across sectors that we need to pull together and kind of use our voice about this issue because none of us can do the work that we're trying to do um, with the direction that poverty is moving in currently. Yeah, I think, to be fair, one of the things that has come out in a lot of our research and also our book, Young People on the Margins, is that poverty seems to underpin quite a lot of other disadvantages. And I know sometimes people are a bit reluctant to discuss poverty because it, it feels as though, you know, we're kind of going in circles. But I think it's an important point to be made. Um, I think fundamentally, it does have a colossal impact on young people's ability to access their education. I mean, we saw the ramifications of it during the pandemic. I think it's a really important point to pick up on. Before we wrap up, is there anything else anyone would like to add? I'll just add a plug that um, if you are an FEA member listening to this podcast and anything we've talked about kind of got you keen to work with others in the sector to tackle that problem together, to help each other do your work better, get in touch, um, info at fareducation.org.uk or with me directly at jhyatt, H-A-Y-A-T, at fareducation.org.uk. Um, we'd love to support you to bring others together on it. Also, I'll make a second plug, which is if you have an idea for how to solve one of these problems in education, apply for our Fair Education Awards. Um, the applications are open right now. It, you can be at the idea stage or an innovation award, or if you are a member organization who is ready to scale up, have a look at our scaling award. But um, that is where so many of the great ideas come from, are from individual innovators who have been in the classroom or have been close to the sector and see a problem and see how to solve it. So we would love to help you do that. Amazing. Thank you, Janine. And you can also find the report card itself on the website, which is fareducation.org.uk. Um, I'm going to wrap the conversation up there. Thank you so much, Janine and Baz. Um, it's been a really insightful conversation and I've really enjoyed working on the report card with both of you. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Vanessa and Baz. It was an absolute joy to work on this document with you. And um, let's give it give it a life for the rest of the year and um, can't wait to, to take this stuff forward. Thanks, Vanessa. And always great chatting to you, Janine. We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, then there are a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you are listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.